0: It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast, from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, broadcaster, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. Episode 25, this is, or the one where I go head-to-head with Sir John Curtis, as it's sure to be known in the years to come. Yes, I really went where Dimblebees fear to tread and had a bit of a rammy with the election knight himself, the nation's foremost wonk, Sir John Curtis, in this episode, uh, as well as Sir John, who is a senior fellow with UK Interchanging Europe. My other guest was Victoria Hewson of the Institute for Economic Affairs. In fact, she is counsel to the International Trade and Compliance Unit at the Institute of Economic Affairs. There's a mouthful for you if ever I heard one. Uh, And with John Curtis, the nation's most senior wonk, it is inevitably quite a wonky one, this. But uh, there's some good fun in there as well, and some really meaty stuff, uh, particularly the discussion that I have with John about uh, what really lies... Behind Brexit. As well as that, there's discussion about a cow. Yes, Penka the cow. You may not remember this. Uh, a few weeks ago, when we were recording this podcast, there was a story about Penka the cow who had strayed between Serbia and Bulgaria, one country being in the EU and one not. Uh, and the fate of Penka became something of a cause celebre amongst uh, the uh, nuttier fringes of the uh, right wing press. We discussed it because uh, it may well have some implications for the Irish border, the Irish border, which never goes away. But we started a discussion talking about what the Institute for Economic Affairs is all about. It's a right wing. Sometimes it's described as think tank, but it's particularly a free trade think tank. So we started by defining our terms. When we're talking about free markets, can you briefly sum up what you, what you or the IEA means by free market for a, a layman? I or a layperson, I should say.
1: We would probably view it, and I'm speaking here as a lawyer, not an economist, mm. as, as businesses and people and resources being able to make decisions most efficiently um, by making their own decisions undistorted by state intervention. And that will result in But isn't the
2: reality that all international trade is quote distorted unquote by state intervention. All international trade operates within the framework of customs and other barriers yes. that states create and in that sense there is no free trade anywhere in the world.
1: Oh no I think that's very that's very fair and I think the objective of a pro competitive, pro free trade trade policy is to minimize those interventions and obviously all countries and territories have policy goals in terms of their priorities for health and environment and consumer protection and the objective that we would see of a a really good pro-competitive pro-growth trade policy is to enable countries to, to maintain those policy preferences in a way that's as least distortive to trade as possible and is um, the most pro-trade whilst respecting those policy goals.
2: Um,
0: (laughs) What does that mean?
1: Well, I mean, the trouble is, you know,
2: uh, if indeed, um, as a society, you say you do wish to um, achieve relatively high environmental objectives, if you say you do uh, actually have a concern about the uh, circumstances under which labour is employed abroad, you will end up having quite a interventionist policy. Um, And, you know, in a sense, I I would guess the ideal position is that there wouldn't be a WTO there wouldn't that basically, I mean, let me let me let me guess your preferred position is that basically post Brexit, the UK should drop all all um, uh, tariff barriers and should just invite the rest of the world to trade freely and that the state should get out. But of course, what we're being offered is not that what we're being offered is the state going off making bilateral deals. With other countries to replace the multilateral deal that we can't have with the European Union.
1: I think if we were to fast forward to the the ultimate goal, mm. you're right. It would be that we would not have any tariffs on imports at all. Uh, we might have trade remedies in place, but they would be very uh, limited in their application. And but we also have to recognise the the world that we're living in. And, you know, the idea of unilateral complete tariff disarmament is very appealing, especially when you look at some of the figures that um, HMRC have been putting forward as to the cost of actually enforcing, collecting, administrating Mm.
0: um, imports. The 20 billion. The
1: the 20 billion. But bearing in mind that the actual tariff revenues that we're talking about are minute and whether it's worth spending even five billion or incurring costs to business of five billion to administer tariff revenues of a few tens of millions or a few hundreds of millions is is debatable so whether actually you know there is an argument for simply dropping all tariffs um, unilaterally. Unilater- there is an argument for that. It's not our position. I'm. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I was position. pushing ahead to
2: the logical conclusion <laughs> of our argument. Um,
1: but there is a there is a very good argument for that, especially in a new deal scenario. In fact, I would suggest we would be compelled to unilaterally drop tariffs in in a lot of areas. It's not all or nothing. You can. Start eliminating tariffs selectively. What about
2: customs regulations? What would you do about customs? So, so and and customs checks. I mean, what would you do about ensuring that goods imported from some Southeast Asian country, which are potentially dangerous to young children, uh, etc., etc., that these aspects of consumer protection are are, are maintained?
1: Yeah, and that's in reality that's what most checks at external borders are about. Yeah. Um, I think 80% of all administrative Mm. governmental activity at borders is not about tariff revenues at all. It's about um, safety checks, um, compliance checks of goods, especially in um, food products yeah. that's that's really well and that's the great battleground that we're going to have with the EU actually especially in the Irish border which we we yeah. come to and and so but 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 I don't think anyone's arguing that you abandon all safety checks and compliance checks it's just that actually most of that is done away from the border anyway I think you know it's it's now a, a reasonably well-known statistic that only about three or four percent at most Of consignments coming into the UK from outside the EU are subject to any physical intervention at the border, and 80% of that is not about customs duties; it's about compliance checks. Mm -hmm. So, for those, I I wouldn't suggest abandoning those. I'm sure we can. Improve the efficiency by which they're carried out.
0: It's an edit. Someone said something boring or illegal. Maybe told some slanderous story about Boris Johnson. You'll never know.
1: We had the case that hit the headlines last week of the Serbian cow that. Oh, pinker the cow. Now that's that's a very interesting one, and that's not a, that's that's a bad precedent for us because of what happened oh, there. No, come on, that that's was
0: cobbler's, wasn't it? Well, I mean it, I didn't look at. It, it I became
1: was... quite a silly story. Yeah, but I it saw, does uh... indicate the the risk that we're dealing with that if we don't get a deal that um, accommodates the the Irish land border, the, the 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 prospect of a cow wandering across the border that runs through a field, and then having to be slaughtered because it doesn't meet the regulatory standards of the other side of the border mm-hmm. is is unthinkable. We can't. We can't
0: have that. Well, it's probably going to get slaughtered anyway, wasn't it?
1: Well, exactly. It, you know, <laughs> it's Is a very really silly matter? story. They probably saved it a few weeks of its way. I was
0: amazed by the people <laughs> from the Telegraph slagging off the Remainers while I was trying to interview a cow. I was like, who's, but, 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 who's
2: but, crazy but, here? But, but herein lies the difficulty, because, of course, um, those on the Union side of Northern Ireland um, will not want to be allowed, the cow to be transported from the north to the south at the cost of not of not being allowed to take the trial just as easily from large strand rock.
1: Actually that's that's not that's not really the case because Northern Ireland already has its own separate veterinary and sanitary regime mm-hmm. for livestock and meat products. So it's the the unionist politicians are very relaxed about having an all yeah. island epidemiological and sanitary and phytosanitary regime it's already a devolved power Mm -hmm. Um, and I so that really and um, imports of livestock from the UK from the Great Britain mainland rather Mm -hmm. to Northern Ireland are already subject to border inspection point checks at LARN as you say so this is a very solvable issue I would say for the Irish border alignment on um, animal, sanitary and veterinary standards for Northern Ireland should be achievable without...
2: um, we will require require Northern Ireland to accept being a rule-taker on veterinary standards. Yes,
1: but I suspect that will be less of an issue with that sector Mm -hmm. than anything else because of the balance of interest in the economy and because of the fact that it's already sort of the case that Northern Ireland has a different regime to the rest of the United Kingdom.
0: We keep going back to Ireland. Um, John, you've got all the uh, um, polling data obviously at your fingertips. Nobody thought about Ireland before the the vote, did they?
2: Not on this side of the water, no, clearly not. Uh, I think it was perfectly obvious that if the UK did vote to leave the European Union that what happened on the island of Ireland was going to be a difficult and important issue because that was the one land border we had. And it's a particularly yeah, politically difficult and also porous border. Uh, so it was always true. But yeah, sure. I mean, you have to bear in mind that it's a while since we've, there's been much public opinion on this, but for the most part, the majority of people in the UK would be quite happy for Northern Ireland to, to leave, to leave mm. the UK anyway. There isn't that much of a commitment. And that's what helps to explain why at the end of the day, there's a some tendency amongst Brexiteers to get somewhat frustrated at the way in which it seems as though the Northern Irish tail is yeah. wagging uh, the, 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 the Brexit dog. Um, but uh, sure, um, I, I'm you know, particularly kind of therefore inclined to blame Sinn Féin for that, etc., etc. Um, so, you know, but you know, so most members of the public will not even engaged with this issue. Most members of the public will not necessarily think it's terrible if indeed there were to be border checks between the north and the south because it doesn't affect them. But of course, um, for a UK government that's reliant on the Northern Irish Unionist Party yeah. for its majority inside the House of Commons. It becomes a particularly important political issue. <laughs>
0: it's pretty special in it. You couldn't actually make up such an amazing mix of and factors, there, really.
1: There, there is that sort of quite uh, immediate concern about the situation of the government requiring the support of, of DUP MPs, but there is a, there is a broader sort of element to that, which is no prime minister wants to be the prime minister that breaks up. The United Kingdom; it is the Conservative and Unionist yes. party, after mm. all. Yes. So I think there is a; it's it's not just that short-term tactical yes. point. And yes. Yes. One
2: of, one, of one of the ironies with which we live is that it tends to be the Brexiteers who wish to get out of the European Union single market who are most desperate to defend the single market, of the United Kingdom. We see this argument not only with respect yes. to Northern Ireland, but also with respect to Scotland and Wales, and it always fascinates me. Whereas, perversely, on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, The Scottish Government, for example, which is very, very keen to keep Scotland inside the EU single market, is less concerned about the development of common frameworks for the UK. Just goes to show the extent to which politics and political perspective often uh, creates somewhat illogical positions so far as both sides of the argument are concerned.
1: I think that's probably fair from a, a, a strict sort of economic perspective, but I'm not sure most people consider the United Kingdom to be primarily a single market. There's there's more to it than than that. Well, no, but that, but, that, but, yeah. but
2: but 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 in the argument about the uh, devolution of powers over agriculture and fish etc., which has arisen in the way, in the wake mm. of yes. withdrawal bill, that is the central issue, as is to whether or not. Um, You do or do not have to have, uh, well, there isn't much agreement about whether you have common frameworks but how they should be achieved and whether or not Westminster should be able to impose them. And the truth is we have a UK government which on the one hand is saying we do not wish to be part of the European Union single market goes on to say but we are desperate to retain the single market in agricultural goods in the United Kingdom. It does, it has to be said from the outside looks somewhat perverse.
0: I draw your attention to the Anne-Marie Trevelyan episode of this podcast. Of course, a very strong Brexiteer with a seat on the border who campaigned, seat. campaigned very much, built a cairn for the Union during the 2014 referendum and is now keen to get out of the EU. That, yes, that's your home seat. Can you do a Northern, Northumberland accent?
1: Eh, well, I'll try, but I cannot really remember what that's to say very anymore. Good. <laughs> very good.
0: You see, we need a plethora of voices in this, in this debate. Now, you just mentioned the UK as an economic union and all, that sort of thing. Uh, I've got economics written in big big letters on my my crib sheet here. This is one that your colleague Matt Goodwin likes to go on about, economics and identity and all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're sitting in the Institute for Economic Affairs. To what extent is Brexit an economic thing in the minds of the voters? And to what extent is it not?
2: Well, the answer is it's both. And the point, the crucial point to understand, is that the two sets of arguments tend to point to the same kinds of people being for or against Brexit. How is it both? Well, let me let, let me explain. I mean, the f- f- first thing to understand is that um, uh, if you wish to identify the single most best predictor of people's attitudes towards the European Union, you ask them what they think the economic consequences of leaving will be. All right. And if you say that the economic consequences of leaving is going to be that the uh, UK economy is going to get worse, you are 90% chance to be a Remainer. And if you think that the UK economy was going to get better if we leave, you're 90% chance of yeah. being a Leaver. And, and crucially, that relationship is actually stronger than it is with immigration. Quite a few people voted to remain despite the fact that they're none too happy about uh, the current levels of immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in, so in that sense, it, um, it, it, it it comes together. But and. and then, crucial thing to understand, point two, is the economic arguments in favour of the European Union membership were more difficult to make in 2016 than they were in 1975. In mm-hmm. 1975, mm-hmm. it was easy, right? The six original members of the European Union have been experiencing much higher levels of economic growth in the post-war period than has the UK. The UK is the sick, sick, sick economy of Europe. Mm-hmm. We, therefore, need to join the club. By 2016, we are talking about a European Union which is associated in people's minds with the Eurozone crisis, with particular difficulties in the economies of the Southern Europe and to some degree the Irish Republic, um, uh, which in turn is also regarded as part of the financial crash. So the arguments in favour of international capitalism have become somewhat less attractive on uh, international capitalism, as epitomized by the European Union, have become somewhat less attractive in the minds of voters. So they're, kind of, they're brexit Brexit. Pro- well, there are lots of things which Brexit would have happened without. But Brexit, it probably wouldn't have happened but for the eurozone crisis in exactly the same way as it would not have happened but for the history of immigration into the UK in the last 15 years. But what you need to understand the reason, I mean, I, I, let me give you a cameo to explain why at the end of the day um, the argument about Brexit is both about what well, you call economics, I would say it's interest. You need to understand here that people view mm-hmm. the economics of Brexit through different sets of socioeconomic interests and that, but also the people who view it with different sets of socioeconomic interests also tend to view it differently culturally as well. Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you t- two stereotypes to explain this. Right, The first stereotype to understand is, is a lady called Lucy. Right? Oh, yeah. She's a 25-year-old um, graduate from the University of East India. Yeah, She has a degree in French and economics. Yeah. She's been working in the city for the last three years. Yeah. Um, most of her work colleagues are non-UK citizens. Yeah. She is on the phone every day to Berlin, uh, Frankfurt, yeah. New York, etc., her boss has, she, she loves living in London. It's this wonderfully diverse yeah. city. She's particularly into Afro Caribbean culture. Okay. Okay? And her boss has come to her and said, Lucy, we think that in the next, 12, next year or so, if you fancy spending a year in our Paris office, we think it'd be good for your career, right? Yeah. So Lucy is somebody who is both culturally attuned to living in a diverse society oh, yeah. and who has the labour market skills to profit from freedom of movement, right? Yes. So for her, the economics of Brexit are clear. Yes. They are to her advantage. Yes. And equally, the immigration of Brexit, she enjoys. Yes. A big she enjoys. Now take it the other end of the spectrum. Mike is a 55-year-old hotel porter in Margate. Okay. Mike used to enjoy um, a, 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 a coffee time with the cleaning staff of the hotel. Okay. Yeah. They used to sit there and they t- and they talked about what was on Coronation Street last night or what's in the sun today or whatever. Yeah. Okay. No more. Because
0: they're all. Remaining. Because the
2: cleaning staff are all Polish. Okay. Right. And they talk to each other in Polish. They talk about what's on the latest Polish website or what was on the Polish telly last night, etc. All right. So culturally, Mike is challenged by. Uh, EU migration. His world has been changed, but equally, Mike has not had a pay rise for the last ten yeah. years, and he reckons that uh, that it it's it's if he were to ask for a pay rise, the, the employers could easily find somebody else from Eastern Europe, yeah, uh, to replace him with. So he is somebody who doesn't see, uh, who thinks he's profited from the European Union. And immigration is something that happens to him yes. rather than something from which he can take an, an advantage. So the point, therefore, is that both these cases are people whose views on the economics of Brexit um, uh, uh, and their views on the cultural consequences of EU membership align with each other because it tends to be those whose view, who, who are, are comfortable with diversity, i.e. people who are graduates who have high labour market skills, also tend to be the ones who profit profit from eu membership and it is those who don't have much in the way of educational qualifications who are feel that immigration happens to them culturally and certainly are less likely to feel that eu membership is something from which they right. benefit. and so therefore the arguments about economics i mean the, the crucial thing that i think people must, that people may make is to assume that this is an issue on which there is a common economic interest there isn't right, All right. there are divergent economic interests and this is an argument about how, in whose interests the economy should operate as well as arguments about what immigration policy should be because of its cultural consequences. Right,
0: okay, you might think I'm crazy to disagree with Sir John Curtis, but I'm going to go there and I'm hoping Victoria might back me up since we're in the Institute of Economic <laughs> Affairs Right, Mike voted Brexit because he thought his job was under threat. It was economics, pure and
2: simple. If Mike. No, would, no, no Mike is Mike's also saying to you that I no longer live in the country in which I no, was born. But
0: if Mike's mouth is stuffed with gold, if he's earning well, if the economy was powering, which it hasn't been for the last 10 years, mm. he'd be quite happy yeah, with sure. all those foolish uh, but, but,
2: but, but equally, he probably wouldn't be bothering about getting out of the European Union. But for the fact no. that the UK has experienced... I've, by its own historical standards, very high levels of net migration for the last fifteen years. These, these two things have coincided, right? The, 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 again, it's a mistake to take them apart. What's happened is that on the one hand, but it's they, a mistake they, they, to they, they, our, our the two, Our isn't? international obligations. Have cre- and, and, and the international world have created a situation whereby the UK has been a very very substantial net importer of population, contrary to its historical experience. At the very same time, when the international capitalist system, as epitomised by the European Union, has been failing to deliver increased living standards, this is a. Uh, it's a combination of those two things that creates the circumstances where at the end of the day, you just about managed to get 52% of people to vote to leave the opinion. But to ignore either of them is to make a mistake. It's the conjunction of events that's crucial. But correlation... As the, stars, as the prophets would always tell I'm gonna,
0: you. I'm going to go there. I'm going to say this to John Correlation is not causation. No, you, of course not.
2: absolutely know. No, no, of course so. not. But, yeah, but I'm not using it's correlation. It's, conju- it's the conjunction of events. Both right. these things are crucial in explaining why people voted the way they do. It, and... And, and certainly if you want to understand why we even had the EU referendum in the first place, i, I say say this to you, if it weren't for the fact that back in 2004 we were more Europhile than any other, virtually any other European Union country and we gave freedom of movement rights to the then the citizens of then AA accession countries before france germany it's everybody yeah. else and if back in 2010 we hadn't said we we're going to get net migration down to below one hundred thousand and completely failed to do so we would not be where we are
0: but in 2004 the economy was booming yes and sure. In 2010 it wasn't no. it is the economy driving no, 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 this. No, no, i no, mean no. i'm not the expert in this but, really. if,
2: the, if, the, but if, if, if if we hadn't op- if we hadn't opened the doors to the, the european union in 2004 we would not, uh, uh, we have been much less likely to have the same uh, level of, of, of um, immigration that we have been that we experienced in its immediate way, because we were, we were the obvious country for East, East European countries to go to. But
1: it was only ever allowed to be a temporary um, block on immigration from sure. those countries. Sure, but the point so is we really would have our really doors at the same
2: time as Germany, France and everybody else, as opposed to being the only destination apart from Ireland and Sweden to which you could go
1: yes but it would have it would have come anyway and the, the the sort of next big wave was after the financial crisis and the eurozone mm-hmm. difficulties where we had the huge influx of you know especially younger people from, from South europe. southern europe yeah. who couldn't get jobs in mm. greece sure. spain sure. portugal so i'm not i'm not sure i know i know there is a very strong argument and certainly correlation with the, the that first wave where we didn't exercise the transitional controls, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that would have made a huge difference in the long term because it could have only ever just delayed the the great influx that we've seen, rather than. You know, well, I don't you,
2: the the sudden influx it. is indeed a, itself a function of the eurozone crisis, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, sure.
0: Um, where are you on on my? argument that it's the economy it's it, the institute of economic affairs right you truly see everything through an economic lens
1: yes but it, it's not only about um it's not only about money you know there are economic welfare is not just about the, the pound in your pocket it's it's about other choices and values. And you know, the example of the um, the hotel porter, It's. It, I think it's very true that it, it's not just that he isn't being paid as much as he would like. It's also that he's not enjoying his work anymore because he doesn't have that same sort of camaraderie and um, well, community feeling. And I, I don't think that can be underestimated, actually.
0: But, you know, like I say, I'm not the expert in this room, but... If Mike's got money in his pocket, then he might be more inclined to sit and talk to his Polish colleagues and say, what's Polish coronation street?"
1: They they don't speak the same language. language. They They don't have the same cultural references. I'm not suggesting at all that they're sort of...
0: Of course they do. It's a well-cut go. They can talk Um, about football, can't they? There's something for them to talk about.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I don't want to overstate this, and I'm certainly not going to um, dispute what what John is saying um, at all. And I'm not at all suggesting that... You know, working class communities across the UK and in, you know, um, Boston and Lincolnshire and all these places are at war at all. Um, It's just that it's this sort of, I think David Goodhart um, in his book described it as the change as loss. And Mm. and I think to a certain extent, yes, pay rise can compensate for some of that, but not entirely.
0: Okay, well, I'm not the exit, so I must be wrong.
2: Remember, we've been here before, all right? Back in 1948, we gave freedom of movement to Brit- all British citizens living uh, within the uh, constraints Oof. of the British Empire and the Commonwealth, right? Yeah. And it was fine for a long time, mm-hmm. and eventually they kept coming, and back, and then in 1973, we stopped it, right? And it was a gradual process it going on It's It was fine as long as nobody was able to actually do it. <laughs> freedom of movement is fine, so long as it involves a relatively small numbers of yeah. professionals going in both directions, yes. right? Freedom of movement becomes very one-sided, um, but not least because of our age structure, because we speak the world's lingua franca, and because relative to certain other uh, European countries, we're doing rather than well. Thank you very much. Creates a problem, and high levels of net migration. After a while, you get a throwback. And fact, it's not you know it's not the first time we tried this, and it's not the first time we failed to, to maintain.
0: Okay, well, listeners can decide between your tons of research and my vague hunch that (laughs) decide which one they think is right um just sort of before we go on to the the features you talk about you know changes lost and things like that is there a frustration that perhaps uh in that name if you like that i'm sort of saying oh you must see everything through an economic lens because you're the institute of economic affairs and people don't give you credit for um just being normal Really, in the sense that, you know, I mean, even we're talking about free market economics and ideal scenarios and all this sort of thing. But as you say, there is an ideal you sort of want to get to, but you are anchored in the real world.
1: I, think, I mean, I think that's right. And I think I, the, the key word in, in that phrase, free market economics, is actually the word free. Hmm. And I would argue, and I'm not claiming in any way to speak on behalf of the whole the, the of the IAA the IA on this, but democracy itself and the feeling that your vote carries weight and mm. is respected is not just an abstract good. That in itself is, um, is, a, is a welfare issue and a, a, a free and open democracy where the, the population feel that they are um, accountable to and their votes carry weight. That will yield economic value in and of itself. Mm.
0: And the opposite to free market economics is shackled market economics, and that sounds rubbish, right? I mean, that, <laughs> you don't really necessarily work that through, I suppose. Good, yes, let's defend democracy. Um, let's finish off with the features that everyone gets asked. <coughs> Best thing! Oh. Worst thing. First of all, the best thing and the worst thing, because goes to you, Victoria, what's going to be the best thing about Brexit?
1: The best thing about Brexit is going to be the repatriation of serious analysis and decision making back to our Parliament. I think we've seen from the woeful state of the debates and the, uh, I hesitate to even call it scrutiny, that um, MPs have given to the Brexit process that most of them haven't understood how the eu works at all (laughs) and if we can bring back some seriousness and accountability for the lawmaking and um regulatory processes and actually the very constitution of this country that will be the best thing about brexit for me
0: um the worst thing there must be downsides what's going to be the worst thing in the
1: short term the worst thing is this is going to go on and on and on it's going to dominate um politics in this country for a long time. How (laughs) long? I'm really torn here because I I think it's, we've obviously got probably a transition period of of the 18 months until December 2021. (laughs)
0: 31st 2020.
1: Uh, of 2020. 2020. <laughs> December twenty twenty right. and then the, the, the then there was the proposed, then the possible Northern Ireland
0: transition period <laughs> yeah um, so I think not even the beginning really isn't it <laughs>
1: but but in reality it, it is going to be a, a dynamic process forevermore as all trade relationships are um, it's just that it's going to simmer down in its intensity after about you know the next two to five years
0: two to five years. But then it'll still be around forever after that. Yes.
1: That
0: sounds a bit optimistic to me, would you agree?
2: <laughs> well, I think it depends in part how well the budget Brexit is thought to go. I mean, if, you know, let's take one scenario. Let's say we crash out of the European Union without a deal that the UK suffers economic yeah. uh, damage thereafter. Well, that's certainly going to result in extreme difficulty for the current government. Um, and a substantial uh, question mark as to, the, to the next government as to what it does and we'll be continuing to argue um, about what we should do. At the other end of the spectrum, you know, this government uh, a, manage, does manage to uh, conclude um, a, a, a deal. Um, and it is one that, at the end, is actually relatively close to the aspirations of of, of the UK government and the majority of the public, and it doesn't result in economic disaster. And we seem to be of developing a a, a a relationship. Now, clearly, there are, there are many options in between those, but I suspect uh, that you know the, the 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 better it is, the less we'll stop arguing, the more we'll stop arguing about it. But the worse it is, the longer it will go on. And the truth is, at this point in time, even though. We are supposedly, what is it, nine months away from withdrawal. Yeah. None of us have the foggiest idea as to how good or bad a deal we're going to get.
0: <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, on <laughs> well, that, you know. Uh let's finish with the recommendations.
1: In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently.
0: What do you recommend? Uh, I want to understand Brexit, everyone wants to understand Brexit. Um, Victoria, what's your recommendation?
1: I'm going to go back to the 70s and suggest everybody should watch the speeches of Peter Shaw and Barbara Castle <laughs> to the Oxford Union in the 1975 referendum debate. Good one.
0: From Apart from distance.
1: anything else, it shows you the dearth of rhetorical talent that our current politicians have. <laughs> and the, the passion yes. and the delivery of both of them is amazing. Yes. You know, they could... They, it very it's very persuasive and inspiring even if you don't agree with the content just just from that perspective yeah. it's fascinating uh,
0: good choice um, John another. Well, mine's
2: much more boring but it does come follow on from the argument that you and I have been having about what's the reason why people support Brexit so yeah. if you haven't read it already then you should read uh, the book by Harold Clark Paul Whiteley and Matthew Goodwin on understanding Brexit which is the one substantial analysis we've had so far as to uh, both the origins of the Brexit referendum and also why people voted it. It also contains by the way contains a fascinating analysis in their very last chapter, which isn't so much about public attitudes, but actually attempts to answer the question: Has European Union membership been good for the UK over the last forty years? And uses various criteria, mm-hmm. such as um, economic benefit and also the quality of governance. And shall we say, suggest that maybe it didn't make much difference. Ooh, okay. Which, of course, if they're right, implies that maybe leaving the European Union isn't going to make as much difference as many people at the moment on both sides <laughs> of the argument seem to think.
0: There you go then. John Curtis and Victoria Hewson. A proper wonky discussion, but uh, very worthwhile, I think. Oh, look, it's the, the penultimate episode of this podcast. And the cat's come to have his say. You got anything to say about free trade, cat? No, I'm chasing a moth. OK, quite right. It's probably, I was going to say, it's more interesting, actually. No, do you know what? I think free trade and a chat with Victoria Houston is a better use of your time than chasing a moth. Certainly if you're a person. Maybe not if you're a cat. Good chat, that. I particularly like Victoria's... Uh, geordie accent i think we need more geordie accents in the uh, podcast in the brexit discussion in general i'd quite like to get lucy and mike john curtis's imaginary people uh, I, I don't think mean that in the sense that they're you know imaginary friends that live in his head or anything like that but uh, they sounded intriguing i'd quite like to track down people like that for future episodes if and when we come back in a second series if you want us to come back for a second series get in touch with the uk and changing europe they are at uk and eu on twitter their website is uk and EU.ac.uk. if you just want to uh, talk to me about uh, all the people we've interviewed over this series we've still got one to come we're not quite done yet i am at political yeti on twitter or my website is james-miller.com, and there you'll find all the recommendations, soon to be complete that list after the next episode. The music has again on this episode been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra, and this has been the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a Changing Europe, supported by King's College London, funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Come back in two weeks for the final episode of the series. Please thank you. Goodbye.